The Marion Finucane Show on RTE Radio 1. Hello there. Very welcome indeed to the programme. Uh, the National Famine Commemoration will be taking place at Juice City today. State ceremony led by Michael D. Higgins, hosted by the Thornister, um, Simon Coveney. Uh, it's an annual event paying tribute to all those who died or suffered in the famine and will involve music, military honours, etc., etc. And I, I repeat that because uh, the man sitting across from me now is involved with exactly that, it, with the famine, but part of the famine uh, that we don't really know that much about because what's not really known is how many Canadians sacrificed their lives to help the Irish who were fleeing the famine. And the man I'm talking about is Robert Kearns. He's chair of the Ireland Park Foundation in Toronto. Uh, you yourself have been there for about 30 years. 38 now, I'm afraid, Marion. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they fly. They do, do um, How did you come around to all this? Did you know about Canada's particular role in the famine before you went there? I did not, no. And in fact, uh, growing up in Ireland and going to school in Ireland, uh, there really was very little, if any, mention of Canada at all. And I think that's a, you know, a very sad state of affairs. And I think perhaps it may have changed now because you know, a lot of water has gone under the bridge and I think an awful lot more Irish people have gone to Canada, especially since 2008, somewhere yeah. between 12 and 15,000, mostly really? young people a year, which would be the largest movement of people from Ireland to Canada since the famine. Right. So, of course, they're really more commuters. I mean, I consider myself a commuter. I mean, I left in November 79, so I come back and forth three, four times a year. And I always think that uh, Seamus Heaney caught that concept very well that you can live in two places at the one time and two times at the one place. Yeah. So uh, the, the, when I went to Canada, I became aware in the late 80s that there was a very interesting but lost story of the... Toronto experience of famine migrants. So 98,000 Irish men, women and children set out from Irish ports, mostly from Limerick, uh, for Canada or for Canada West as it was called, for the port of Quebec. And about 20% of them died at sea or shortly after arrival. So there's about 4,500 buried on Gros Isle, 6,000 in Montreal, 1,440 in Kingston, and about uh, 1,186 in Toronto. So those communal graves would be the largest communal graves in the whole American hemisphere from Antarctica to the High Arctic. Right. Uh, which is extraordinary, really. Yeah, the... Um we always think of the United States and mm. people getting the boat and, and going to the United States. But at a certain time, the United States didn't allow them in That's right. because of what was known as... Ship fever. Yeah. That's right. Tell us about that. Well, um, the American ports were open up until 1840, early 1847. And they decided in for Boston, New York, and Philadelphia that ship's captains arriving with passengers carrying ship fever or cholera or typhus, as it was known, yeah. uh, they'd face a very significant fine. So the majority of the vessels uh, went to went into the St. Lawrence, 
and uh, as we know, that was the, there was a quarantine island that was set up in the St. Lawrence at Grosil uh, in response to a cholera epidemic of 1832. Uh, but then they moved onwards from there to Quebec City and to Montreal, and then they came down through the Great Lakes. In fact, many of them were uh, en route to enter the United States via the rear entry. Right. Um, yeah. But what's very interesting is that in 1847, the population of Canada was about one and a half million, and 98,500 Irish men, women, and children set out for Canada. Right. Toronto, which had a population of 20,000, took in 38,560. Just to hit us with that number yeah. again, it had a population of 20,000. Yes. And they took in 40,000. Yeah, exactly. I mean, when you look at Syria and the movement yeah. there today, we're, we're not as welcoming as the Canadians. <laughs> not, no, no. So tell us about them and the, the difference, because at that stage... Canada would have been very um, conservative? Well, uh, you know, what's not well known is that between the end of the Napoleonic Wars in 1815 and, say, June 1845, just when the potato blight uh, struck, about 495,000 Irish men and women and children from the whole of the island of Ireland had emigrated to Canada. And about the same number had gone to the United States. But what's not well known is the fact that so many went to Canada. So in 1847, people were either trying to get to the United States via Canada because they couldn't get into the main ports, or else they were going to join their relatives who were already there. Yeah. Uh, so it, before, between 1815 and 1845, about 70% of the migrants were, shall we say, Presbyterian, Protestant, Anglican, 30% Catholic. That switches around almost exactly in 1847, so 70% Catholic, 30% Anglican. But in Toronto, what's so interesting is that an Anglican doctor lobbied his brother to become appointed as the attending surgeon at the emigrant hospital. And he got the job on the 18th of June, 1845 and was dead on the 16th of July. So he, and he knew what was going to happen. He knew what was going to happen, yeah. He came from a very distinguished uh, Irish medical family. Uh, his father had served with General Woolsey in the, uh, in the Peninsular Wars. He himself was born in Lisbon. His grandfather uh, was from Longford, and so was his great-grandfather. They trained at the Westmoreland Hospital in Dublin. And his name? It uh, was George Robert Grisset. Right. And so we're building a, a new park. We built Ireland Park, and which President McAleese opened in June of 07. And we're opening a second park now, which we believe will be the first park to honor the doctors and nurses and triage officers who volunteered, came forward, went to the fever sheds to help these people, and they lost their lives. And not only lost their lives, but they've been lost to history. So we're going to restore their memory uh, to history and what they did because it was a very courageous thing to do in 1847 to come forward and to uh, put one's life at risk uh, for total strangers, many of whom spoke Gaelic and they didn't understand the language. Uh, yes, they would have yeah, been yeah. Irish-speaking, right. Catholics, yeah. um, absolute, full of misery, hmm. and this terribly dangerous... Like, I think somebody made a point, it would be like people with Ebola That's right. yeah. coming, yeah. Uh, wh where we would all be scared stiff. Exactly. So notwithstanding that risk, they still step forward. And uh, we've recovered the names of 10 or 12, uh, two doctors, three or four nurses, and a number of hospital orderlies. Some of them died on the same day, some two or three days apart. 
a great deal of fear in the city. Um, so the population of 20,000 swelled by about 2,800. The rest moved on into rural Ontario or else into the United States. Right. Um, what provision had they made for these immigrants? Well, because Toronto was quite a way down the, shall we say, the, 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 the journey from the entrance of the St. Lawrence, uh, Grosil was the first point of arrival, the quarantine station. Other people disembarked in St. John, um, New Brunswick. Uh, others uh, disembarked in Halifax. Um, a doctor died in, in, in New Brunswick in St. John. Three doctors died on Grosil. Uh, the These were doctors that Canadian were looking doctors. after Yeah, them. Canadian doctors. And also quite a number of the grey nuns from Montreal died. The mayor of Montreal died. I mean, 6,000 men, women and children buried in a communal grave is hard to contemplate. Uh, but, you know, that's not known. And there are no major communal graves in the United States because people with typhus and chip fever weren't permitted to enter. Right. So they came into Canada. Yeah. It's a, it's a little known fact. I, I thought they were all welcomed in the United States. But I think it's remarkable that such a small population mm. would welcome. Was there any sign of protest that people didn't want? Oh, absolutely. Um, I mean, uh, whether one was Catholic or Protestant is not as relevant today, but in 1847 it was significant. And for people carrying a life-threatening disease that had no cure, there was a great deal of fear. So the hospital reserve, as it was called, is actually right under what's now the Toronto International Festival, Film Festival site. Um, and that is the site where the city of Toronto has given us an 80 by 20 foot location. And what was there? It was, the, it was the fever hospital. It was the first brick hospital was built in Toronto in 1819. And when news of the approach of the Irish migrants came down through the system from the Great Lakes, the city of Toronto uh, allocated funding to build, uh, to build 14 open-sided fever sheds. They were about 80 by 20 feet in, in dimensions, open-sided. And so that was where the, the migrants were taken care of. Basically, they were shelters from, from, uh, from rain and sun. Yeah. But the mortality rate was only 3% relative to the number of migrants, whereas the overall, the overall mortality rate was 20%. So by the time individuals made it to Toronto, they were the healthier ones. They'd survived. Right. And yeah. also they'd more time to prepare, provide food and, and drink and shelter and so on. Which they did. With, yes, with, they did. With great yeah. generosity. Yeah. And there, was, there were Muslim... Um, cheesecloth. Cheesecloth, yeah. Yeah, yeah the cheesecloth uh, is a very interesting story um, because we engaged Professor Mark McGowan, who's one of Canada's great scholars on the famine and is doing great work with, um, the, with Strokestown, the National Famine Memorial Centre. And in the research, he recovered the information of uh, cheesecloth being requested by Dr. Grisset for the fever hospital because typhus is a, a medical condition where you lose your body fluids. So it's, it's not a very fragrant experience. And in the hot summer of Toronto, right. there are a lot of yeah. flies. So they uh, attacked uh, panels of cheesecloth to the rafters to provide some relief from the flies. And so in the design we have created for Grisset Park, we have set the, the plinth of the park as the 1840. 42 Keynes map of Toronto in black granite from Quebec and then we are building 35 36 foot high panels of glass with um, photographic uh, images of cheesecloth so if you're standing on the north side of the street shortly after sunset and you look south 
you'll see an image that won't be dissimilar to what was seen in 1847 of billowing cheesecloth with lantern light inside the fever sheds. It'll be quite ghostly, which is quite appropriate. Right. Yes. And tell me more about this man, Grasset, and what might have been his future. Well, Grasset came from an establishment family, and his brother, his older brother, was the dean of St. James Cathedral. His father was a prominent doctor. He had been a doctor down in Amherstburg near Windsor. Uh, he was very popular in the local community. They went and raised money to try and persuade him to stay, which he did for an additional year. And then in 1842, he came back to Toronto. And he was a member of the, he was the secretary to the Ontario Bible Society. He volunteered his time uh, in, the House of in uh, the House of Industry and the Hospital for the Indigent Sick. That was for people who couldn't afford medical care. Mm. So he was, in my opinion, and I think in many other people's opinion, sort of Toronto, certainly one of Canada's, you know, first medicine sans frontier doctors. And he made a decision that he could have access to the finest drawing rooms of Toronto, but he not to do that, but to actually go forward and to help people. So what's so important, in my opinion, regarding the commemoration of the famine, Ireland Park talks about and speaks to the arrival of migrants in 1847, but Grisset Park is the companion to it. It tells the story of how the local citizens of the city courageously kept, came forward and helped total strangers risk their lives. Some of them lost their lives, but so many others survived. And what we want to try and do in telling the story of the famine and Canadian migration, actually Irish migration to Canada, it's not all about mortality. There was loss of life. But for those who did lose their lives, I think they would want to know that whatever sacrifice they'd made on the voyage or upon arrival, that their sons and daughters and brothers and sisters went on to make a huge contribution to Canada, mm. which they did. And at the time of Confederation, 20 years later in 1867, the Irish was probably the largest uh, single population group in Canada. And right now, Canada, in all the diaspora countries, has the highest per capita percentage of its population of Irish extraction. Really? Yeah, it's about four, four and a half million, which is about 13, 14 percent of the population. Right. Because Not well known over here either. No, it yeah, isn't. Yeah. And, I mean, we know that there are so many million uh, who claim Irish heritage in the States, but mm. not really in Canada. No, no. Canada is the best kept secret in this country. I, my life's work is to try and change that. <laughs> <laughs> that's fair enough. So that's Grisset Park. Tell us about Ireland Park. Well, Ireland Park um, began as a project in 1996. I had the great pleasure and honour to meet Rowan Gillespie through Norma Smurfett when she acquired and donated Rowan sculptures that are on the quayside in Dublin. They're beautiful. They're magnificent. Yeah. So um, I said to Rowan, look, if I could get a waterfront location in Toronto, would you sculpt a new group depicting a rival, which he very kindly agreed to do. So we spent a couple of years, two, three years, finding a location on the waterfront. And once we'd secured that in uh, July, August of 2000, uh, we set about the process of creating a, a, you know, a board and raising money. So that began in 2004, and the park was opened by President McAleese in June of 2007. We raised about $3.7 million to build the park. Right. There's a lot of exciting things happening around the park now, because when we built it, it was, it was really a sort of abandoned industrial land. 
and so only one dock wall had been rebuilt. Now the City of Toronto has just voted $13.5 million to rebuild the dock wall on the south side and to expand the footprint of the park and to landscape other areas around it. So the, really the best days of Ireland Park on the Toronto waterfront are yet to come. Right. Mm. Um, I, I know the character, uh, Mulvey, in Star of the Sea, oh, yes, yeah. um, that Ron Gillespie's work mm. creates that it does. image or illusion mm. or whatever. Was it, did he have it in mind? I don't know. <laughs> That's a, a sensitive subject. Uh, I was here at the time, uh, you know, arranging the departure of the sculptures from Toronto to, or from Dublin to go to Toronto. And Rowan called me and said, look, I want to do a fifth figure for the group in Toronto. And uh, he said, uh, it's going to, it's inspired by Joseph O'Connor's book. And Joseph O'Connor was inspired to write his book, The Star of the Sea, by the sight of Rowan sculptures on the dark side. So it came full circle. So I was trying to get $100,000 sponsors for each of the sculptures. So he said, well, this figure is going to be Pius Mulvey, who is a, a vile, murderous character. Yes, yes. I said, Rowan, how am I ever going to get sponsorship for that figure? <laughs> so anyway, we did in the end. And he's a very interesting figure. And you can see him on the website, and there's a small video of how Rowan actually made that sculpture. Right. And yeah. it's masterful. It really yeah. is. Yeah. As is the book, by the way, for, for anybody that hasn't read it. Yeah. Um, it, in a sense, how conscious are Canadians? I know there's very little consciousness here, mm. but how conscious are Canadians of all this? Increasingly so. Um, but really, for uh, Irish migrants, the experience of going to Canada, with perhaps with some exception relative to Montreal, Irish immigration to Canada was dispersed across the countryside, right. mostly into farming communities. So they never formed a critical mass of voters to create a dynamic in the voting process. Tammany Hall. Exactly. So it was more diverse and, and, and widespread. But at the same time, uh, they appear in many other parts of, of Canadian society and civic government and education and all sorts of areas. And so the other issue was that the in 1866, 800 uh, Irish-American veterans of the Civil War, both from the Confederate and the Union Army, militarily invaded southern Ontario. And this had been preceded by two or three years of Fenian agitation. The idea was, well, we can't get across the Atlantic because of the Royal Navy's strength, so why don't we invade Canada and seize it as a, as a bargaining chip for the re release of Ireland from empire? And so Canada was <laughs> the only country, as far as I know, that Irish men in, in arms, in uniform, have invaded. And so nine <laughs> Canadians were killed at the Battle of Ridgeway. Oh, right. I stopped the four, laughing. And 42 were wounded. Yes. And uh, we organized a dinner, actually, in, uh, in, in 2013 uh, to restore to memory the nine Canadians who lost their lives, most of whom were young students from the University of Toronto. They've been lost to memory. And um, so, and we also provided the, the Irish ambassador to Canada the names of the American Irish insurgents. Uh, whose names may end up in Glasnevin. But the point of this, Marion, is that there was a, there was a challenge amongst uh, Irish Canadians and Canadians that are, are you loyal to Canada or are you sympathetic with Fenianism? And as a result, there was a very strong Orange Lodge in parts of Canada. But over the course of time, uh, there was a full embracing of Irish migrants in Canada. So 
it, it, it was somewhat a badge of honor, the, 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 the degree and the alacrity with which one could subsume into the wider Canadian population. Right. Yeah. So one didn't have the shamrockery or the green parades of Chicago right. or Savannah or yeah. New York. Yeah. Um, caller was on to say, I've just turned on the radio and immediately recognised your guest as a contributor to that wonderful film, Death of Canada, which is not widely available. I have used it in class for years when teaching the famine. That's right, yes. Ballinran Productions uh, made the documentary and we would hope that they might make it more widely available. It was actually Death or Canada and that was a headline from the Limerick Leader in 1842 or 1845 which of course is a, a lift on Cromwell's to Heller Connacht. Right, yeah. 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 Uh, don't forget, it says another caller, the huge amount of Irish orphans adopted by French Canadians and absorbed into French Canadian society. Absolutely, yes indeed. And there were 186 Irish orphans in Toronto at the end of that summer of sorrow of 1847. And um, a number of families from rural Ontario came down to Toronto and, and adopted them and, you know, promised them board and lodging and food and an opportunity to commence a life in Canada. But the story that your caller refers to is a very poignant story uh, of about, um, I think, six or eight hundred orphans who had lost their parents and were still on the quarantine island of Grosil. And the Bishop of, uh, of Quebec City uh, brought two sisters up to the high altar and asked the congregation to adopt them. And so over the course of the next week or so, all of the orphans were adopted, but there was a condition, and that was they could keep their Irish names. So former Prime Minister Paul Martin is a descendant of one of those children, and his father was the um, Canadian Minister of Foreign Affairs who um, promoted and made possible uh, Ireland's uh, involvement in the United Nations in 1948-49. Really? Yeah, that was Paul Martin Sr. Okay. Another uh, caller says, Thanks, Marion, for acknowledging uh, our really significant and ongoing connection with Canada. Thomas Darcy McGee was one of the founders of Federal Canada. Mm -hmm. Let us not forget that when the recent crash happened, we got 10,000 visas from Canada. We did indeed. In fact, there were nearly 15,000 visas. And Canada swung open its doors to Irish migrants in the way it had in 1847, when other adjacent uh, countries did not. They were building a wall. <laughs> so uh, I'm under strict instructions to make no other comments on that. So, <laughs> but... Uh, uh, Really, Canada has always been there as, as Ireland's friend and was there during the famine, um, very supportive of Ireland having home rule. The leader of the Liberal Party of Canada, uh, which would be, you know, the equivalent of Fianna Fáil, Fianna Gael, is yeah. one of the two major parties, Edward Blake, he resigned his seat in the House of Commons in Canada, got on board ship with his family and came back to Ireland and ran for a seat in Longford and sat in, the, in Westminster as a home rule member of Parliament. I mean, that was the degree of passion right. about support for this country. Right. Thanks. Uh, oh, yes. Yeah, sorry, I've read that. Just one uh, further comment. What a wonderful story. 
poignant and heroic. I had the chance to visit Grosseil when the Canadian National Archives was digitising our 1901-1911 census records and I will never forget it and the sacrifice of the medical staff who looked after our destitute ancestors. Canada is a big part of the Irish emigrant story. Oh, that's from Katrina Crowby. She would have been very much involved in that. Yes. Well, listen, I presume you're trying to raise a few bob around here, are you? I've always tried to raise a few <laughs> bob. <laughs> yes, we are. Because yeah. you've had two Taoiseach over there. We have, indeed. We have. Uh, uh, Taoiseach Kenny was in Toronto in early May last year. And uh, Taoiseach Leo Varadkar was there in August to break the ground for the construction of Dr. Grissett Park, which was very appropriate as he himself is a medical doctor. Right. It, it rained on Andrew Kenny. It did. Buckets of it. Curtain rods of it, yeah. And, of uh, the day, without it, any brawlies or that. Well, we had a, we had a little sort of... Um, uh, umbrella with a couple of with four poles that kept the worst of it off, but of course it was windy, so the the the, the, the rain would pond on the canopy and then it would be lifted by the wind and you could get a good shower. But it was great. He he took it in great stride and said it was appropriate that it would be windy and wet because that was really the conditions many of the migrants arrived in. Yeah. Yeah. Well, good for him to take uh, that attitude. Listen, yeah. uh, it's lovely to hear that story and every success with its construction and completion. Thank you very much indeed, okay. Marion. Okay, all you. the best. Thanks very much, Robert Carnes. Podcast, The Marion Finucane Show, at rte.ie slash radio.